Alright everybody, welcome back. In this episode we're going to get into Deuteronomy chapter 31 where Moses is going to charge the people, Joshua and the priests, some final instructions. And uh, so in verses Deuteronomy chapter 1 through 4, you're going to talk about failure. Chapters 5 through 11, talk about mutual love. Chapters 12 through 20, talk about obligations of a God-related people. And chapters 27 through 30, talk about alternatives for a God-related people. And these final four uh, chapters, chapters 31 through 34, are going to talk about arrangements for continuity. And so, passing the baton. This is the last section of the book of Deuteronomy. It is a requiem to uh, Moses and extends from chapters 31 to 34. It begins with the fifth oration, which Moses gave to the children of Israel and is recorded in this book. And we are coming to the end of the life of Moses. The entire Bible up to this point has been written by him, and a great deal of it has been about him. He has been a key person ever since they came out of the land of Egypt, and he has been concerned with Israel for 40 years, and he has left us a record of the 120 years of his life. Yet even he was not indispensable to the fulfillment of God's uh, purpose. So now he is getting ready to die. So Moses had finished his work as the legislature and ruler and leader of Israel, and he now had to establish his successor to the leadership, committing the keeping of the law to the priests, admonishing the people to obedience, encouraging them to go forward in the conquest of Canaan, assuring them of the divine favor and blessing, and finally pronouncing on them his parting uh, benediction. So let's take the first two verses, Moses at 120. Then Moses went and spoke all these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I can no longer go out and come in. Also the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross over this Jordan. So Moses said 120 years was not limited by his physical condition. In a short time, he will climb up to the top of a mountain. Instead, he could no longer go out and come in because he was limited by God's command. The decree that Moses would not enter the promised land back in Numbers chapter 20 verses 7 through 12. And you shall not cross over this Jordan. These specific words of God to Moses are not recorded in Numbers chapter 20 account. This must be a further elaboration of the decree. You shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them in Numbers chapter 20 verse 12. And there is a difference between you shall not bring this congregation to the land and you shall not cross over this Jordan. By the first statement, it is allowable that Moses could go into the promised land, but not as leader of the nation, having passed the torch of leadership to Joshua. But God made it even more clear to Moses, you shall not cross over this Jordan. So God's correction of Moses was very hard. Not only will he not lead Israel into the promised land, he will not even go there. That which he had dreamed of and felt called to as a child in the palaces of Egypt to deliver God's people will not be completed. Another is going to finish the job and Mo- and Moses' feet will never touch the soil of the land that God had promised to the covenant descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And why was it such a severe punishment? What did Moses do? So essentially at Meribah in Numbers chapter 20 verses 7 through 12 when Israel complained and cried out for water, Moses misrepresented Represented God. He misrepresented God by lecturing the nation harshly and unnecessarily. 
Moses misrepresented God by acting as if God needed him to provide water for the people. And Moses both misrepresented and disobeyed God by angrily striking the rock twice instead of just speaking to the rock as God had told him to. And essentially what Moses did was he broke the model. The rock was a picture of Christ. And the first time he would be the suffering servant and he was to be struck and water would come out. The second time he was to be spoken to, right? Same model as Christ came and went to the cross the first time. The next time Israel will cry out for their Messiah and he will come. And this may seem an excessively harsh punishment for Moses. After all, with only one slip up, he must now die short of the promised land. But Moses was being judged by a stricter standard because of his leadership position with the nation and because he had a uniquely close relationship with God. It is right for teachers and leaders to be judged by a stricter standard in James chapter 3 verse 1. Though it is unrighteous to hold teachers and leaders to a perfect standard. It is true the people's conduct was worse than Moses, but it's irrelevant here. Worst of all, Moses defaced a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ's redemptive work through the rock which provided water in the wilderness. The New Testament makes it clear this water-providing life-giving rock was a picture of Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. Jesus being struck once provided life for all who would drink of him in John chapter 7, verse 37, but was unnecessary and unrighteous that Jesus would be struck again, much less again twice because the son of God needed only to suffer once in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 10 through 12. So Jesus can now be come to with words of faith in Romans chapter 10 verses 8 and 10. As Moses should have only used words of faith to bring life-giving water to the nation of Israel, Moses ruined this picture of the work of Jesus God intended. So now Moses must face his destiny. Not only you shall not bring this congregation to the land, but also you shall not cross over the Jordan. So when Moses stood before Pharaoh, he was 80 years old back in Exodus chapter 7, verse 7. Since then, 40 years had elapsed during the wanderings in the wilderness. Moses did not choose Joshua. God selected him to be the leader to succeed Moses. I doubt whether Moses would have been uh, would have chosen Joshua if the choice had really been left to him. And actually, Caleb would seem more impressive than Joshua, and it would have seemed more natural for him to be the new leader. All right, let's take verses 3 through 6, the charge to the children of Israel. The Lord your God himself crosses over before you. He will destroy these nations from before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua himself crosses over before you, just as the Lord has said. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and their land when he destroyed them. The Lord will give them over to you, that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you, and he will not leave you nor forsake you. So Moses had led Israel for some 40 years, and he was the only leader most of these people had ever known. Yet the nation could be confident, and Moses could go his way in peace because he knew God was with Israel. So Israel, Moses, or Joshua did not have to be afraid. Instead, they could be strong and of good courage because the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. And Moses was a great man and one of the greatest to ever walk this earth. But Moses was not irreplaceable. God being with them, Israel was was in good hands with or without Moses. And it was now time for the nation to take courage in the Lord and not fear nor be dismayed. Moses passes from the scene, but God has not abandoned Israel. So though Moses was no longer 
to be their leader, he assures them that the Lord will fulfill his engagement to conduct them to the possession of Canaan, even as he had already given them the territory of the kings of the Amorites, and therefore exhorts them to be of good courage and fearlessly go forward to the conquest of the land in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 21, and chapter 10, verse 3. So Moses is encouraging these people not to fear the enemy tribes that are in the land. He encourages this generation over and over, telling them to cross over into the land. He had lived through the experience of Kadesh Barnea, and he had seen the older generation turn yellow and run back into the wilderness. Let's take verses 7 through 8. You're going to have the charge to Joshua. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you, and he will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. So bringing the people into the promised land was God's work, and he was going to do it. But God almost always does his work through men and women who make themselves available to him. Sometimes people wrongly say, it is all the Lord, it's all the Lord. True, God does his work, but he does it through people. And since God was going to use Joshua, he must be strong and of good courage. But Moses knew Joshua and knew that he would. So he he confidently said, you shall cause them to inherit it. Men of encouragement like Moses are a blessing. Moses knew that Joshua might be wavering, so he encouraged him and pushed him forward to be more than he perhaps thought that he could be. And God uses encouraging people to help us fulfill the destiny he has for us. So Joshua was the man, but the work was the Lord's. He is the one who goes before you. We'll take verses 9 through 13, the charge to the priest. So Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place of which he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. So just as the kings of Israel were to write their own copy of God's law in Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 18, so Moses wrote this law, and he as an uncrowned king over Israel loved God's word and wanted to pass it on to the generation behind him. So part of the job of the Levites was to minister the word of God to the nation as they were scattered throughout the nation. Every seven years they were to have a public reading and explanation of the law of God as was modeled in Nehemiah chapter 8 verses 1 through 8. The first we know of a public reading of the law is in Joshua chapter 8 verse 30. The next we hear of it is during the reign of Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 17 verse 7, more than 500 years later. Then at the reign of Josiah, there was another public reading of the law in 2 Chronicles chapter 34 verse 30, more than 250 years after Jehoshaphat. Of course, there might have been public readings of the law as commanded here which are not recorded, but the fact that some are recorded probably means that they were unusual, not typical. With this kind neglect of God's word, no wonder Israel was so often in trouble. And this seven-year national focus on God's word was especially important for the children among the people of Israel. Through his word, they could come to a personal relationship with the Lord. 
So this was the same lesson that uh, Isaiah had to learn. And Isaiah chapter 6 starts, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Poor Isaiah. Isaiah had been a good king, and now that he was dead, Isaiah thought things were really going to be bad, but he found that God was still on the throne, that the real king of Israel and of Judah was still on the throne, and he wasn't dead. He wasn't even sick. And Isaiah learned that although Isaiah had died, God was still very much alive. So Deuteronomy began with these are the words which Moses spoke and there are about eight orations of Moses in the book, giving orally then written down. Moses wrote this law, right? Seventy elders assisted him, scribes also likely. They probably were the ones who wrote chapter 34. The Graf-Wellhausen theory rejects the Mosaic authorship, considering the Pentateuch as historical documents compiled shortly before 400 BC. The original argument for this theory was that writing was not in existence at the time of Moses and of course archaeologists have found that writing was in it was in existence long before Moses day but the Graf Wilhausen theory is still held by the liberal wing of the church for the obvious reason that the prediction of Israel's uh, declension after entering the land is so accurate that the unbeliever would like to think that it was written as history rather than as prophecy furthermore Jesus Christ attributes each of these books of the Torah to Moses. And I don't know about you, but that's enough for me. Jesus Christ authenticated Moses as the author of the five books. And as long as you have faith in Jesus Christ, then you'll have no issues figuring out who the author of the Torah is. So the septennial reading of the law to Israel in verse 10 at the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 16, verse 13, in the year of release, chapter 15, verse 1, was intended not as the sole means of teaching the people of Israel their uh, covenantal obligations, but as a, an especially impressive reminder at this time of the sabbatical renewal and consummation of the need for an ever-fresh self-consecration by the servants of the Lord if they would enjoy full covenant. So if they had faithful to do this, so after Joshua's day, the history in the book of Judges would have been much different indeed. All right, we'll take verses 14 and 15, the preface to Joshua's inauguration as leader of Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tabernacle of meeting that I may inaugurate him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of meeting. Now the Lord appeared at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood above the door of the tabernacle. So through the wilderness journey, we find Moses and Joshua together before the Lord often. Exodus chapter 33 verse 11 says, His servant Joshua the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Joshua was qualified to serve because he was at home in the presence of the Lord. So this begins a solemn and important chapter in the history of God's people. This will be Moses' retirement ceremony and Joshua's inauguration ceremony. So after nominating Joshua as his successor and assigning the keeping of the law to the priesthood and body of elders, Moses was summoned by the Lord to appear with Joshua in the tabernacle, that Joshua might receive a charge and appointment to his office. Joshua, like Moses in Exodus chapter 3 verses 1 through 4, or Exodus Exodus chapter 3 verse 1 all the way through uh, chapter 4 verse 17, was personally commissioned by the Lord himself. And at the same time, God announced 
to Moses that after his death, the people would go astray, turn to idolatry, and violate the covenant so that God's anger should be kindled against them. And he would leave them to suffer the consequences of their folly and sin. In view of this, Moses was directed to write a song and teach it to the people that it might abide with them as witness against them, rising up, as songs will do, in the memory of the nation, even after they had apostatized from the path in which the author of the song had led them. All right, we'll take verses 16 through 22, a song of Moses to warn Israel in a time of future apostasy. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land, where they will go to be among them. And they will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured. And many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day, because of all the evil which they have done, in that they have turned to their other gods. Now therefore, write down this song for yourselves, and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. When I brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat, and then they will turn to other gods and serve them, and they will provoke me and break my covenant. Then it shall be, when many evils and troubles have come upon them, that this song will testify against them as a witness. For it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants, for I know the inclination of their behavior today, even before I have brought them to the land of which I swore to give them. Therefore, Roses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the children of Israel. So because of this future idolatry in Israel, God instructed Moses to compose a sort of a national anthem for ancient Israel. Remember, God stands outside the domain of time. He sees past, present, and future simultaneously. So Israel's disobedience did not come as a surprise to him. It's not a knee-jerk reaction. He had this all planned out. So Moses wrote the song and taught it to the children of Israel, and yet this was a strange national anthem because the purpose of the anthem was to testify against them as a witness. God knew the words are more memorable when set to music, so he told Moses to compose the sermon in a song found in the following chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 32. So behold, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. It's also found in Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, Psalm 13, verse 3, Psalm 76, verse 5, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, Matthew chapter 27, verse 52, John chapter 11, verse 11, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. The death of men, both good and bad, is often called a sleep, because they shall certainly awake out of it by resurrection. And there are people who say today, we are different today, will not turn away from God. Do you know that Jesus said the same thing about the church? In Luke chapter 18, verse 8, he said, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, he shall find faith on the earth. Faith is the faith, the whole body of revealed truth. The answer to that is no, he won't. In fact, the way the question is couched in the Greek demands a negative answer. In the New Testament, there is a uh, there's predicted the apostasy of the church, just as it was predicted of Israel. And you and I are living in that today. And the song which Moses and Joshua wrote together is in the following chapter and we'll jump down to verse 23 real quick the inauguration of Joshua then he inaugurated Joshua the son of Nun and said be strong and of good courage for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land which I swore to them and I will be with you and it's remarkable how often this exhortation is directed towards Joshua he uh, he hears it seven different times in Deuteronomy chapter 31 verses 
6 and 7 and verse 23 Joshua chapter 1 verses 6 7 9 and 18 this exposes Joshua's weakness there is a need for such a command because even a great leader like Joshua needed such encouragement most of us God forgive us are too big for God to use we are too full of our own schemes and our own ways of doing things Joshua needed to take strength and courage in the Lord and was small enough to be big in God. Wonderfully, the last time this phrase is used in connection with Joshua, he is encouraging others to be strong and of good courage in Joshua chapter 10 verse 25. He could encourage others with the encouragement the Lord through others had given him. And this was a manly way to speak to Joshua. God and Moses would not pander to Joshua's weak and timid nature. He didn't hear, oh Joshua, you're so wonderful. Oh Joshua, you're so strong. Or, oh Joshua, you're so courageous. Instead, he heard, now is the time. Step up to the challenge be strong and of good courage. So Joshua, by nature weak and lacking courage, needed to hear this from Moses. He needed to hear, you're going to do it and this is going to happen. We'll jump down to verse 24 through 27 where Moses preserves the law of God as a witness against Israel. So it was when Moses had completed writing the words of this book, of this law in the book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord saying, take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. For I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? So Moses finished the first five books of the Bible and gave this to Israel and to all creation as the inspired words of God. So some out there will raise objections at this point, wondering who wrote the last three chapters of Deuteronomy because the text says that Moses finished here. And no doubt Joshua had the remainder of Moses' words and deeds recorded and added to the end of his magnificent work. The Ten Commandments were placed inside the Ark of the Covenant in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 4, but the whole book of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, was placed beside the Ark of the Covenant to stand as a witness against you. So Moses knew Israel was going to rebel. They did it ever since they came out of Egypt and while they were in Egypt. And he knew this both from the promise of God in Deuteronomy chapter 31 verses 16 and 17 and from common sense, right? He said, today, if I'm alive with you, you've been rebellious. How much more after my death? So therefore, the law would stand as a witness against a rebellious Israel. And we love to find refuge in God's word in our times of stress and trouble, but we don't often consider that God's word. If we reject Jesus and rebel against God... Um, is no friend to us. It is a witness against us, a witness that rises up to testify against us. So in the side of the ark, a tor by the side of the ark, according to the Targum of Jonathan, it was in a coffer by the right side of the ark that the book was placed, but the Talmudists say that it was put within the ark along with the two tables of the Decalogue, right? All right, take verses 28 through 30. The elders and officers of Israel gather for the song of Moses. So gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their hearing and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you. And evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord and provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. 
Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of the song until they were ended. So, in fact, the song of chapter 32 is strongly reminiscent in its structure and content of a well-known secular political form, namely the formulation of a complaint against a rebel vassal by his overlord with the threat of punishment. It is not impossible that some, at least in Israel, would have understood such a pattern, and Moses would certainly have met it in Pharaoh's court. So he calls the tribes around him, just as old Jacob had called the twelve sons around him in Genesis 34. The twelve sons have now become the twelve tribes. They're a great nation, and Moses calls them to him. And uh, this statement is still true, and it's been in verse 29. It's been fulfilled quite literally, and it's also true of the entire human family. For God has said that mankind apart from God will utterly corrupt itself. And all we need to do is look around us today, and we can see that this is true. And so in verse 30, the song is rather different from the preaching style found in most of the rest of the book. It is, in contrast, poetic, and in both substance and style, it anticipates passages in the Psalms and prophetic scriptures. It is rock music. It's all about the rock who is Christ. And that ties up Deuteronomy 31. Next time we'll get into 32 covering the song of Moses. Thank you for joining me.